So today is our sixth and uh, final final week of this series, I'm church members. So let me pray with you. Lord, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you that, Lord, you are speaking, God, that you are calling us as the church. Lord, to be on mission, to be a part of building and advancing the kingdom of God on the earth. Lord, it's just an amazing, awesome privilege that you would call us to be a part of that. And that each one of us is essential, each one of us is necessary. Lord, again, as we dive deeper into, Lord, this uh, topic, God, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us individually, speak to us as a church. Lord, we want to know what you're saying. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Or to the church. And we love you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, you know, the series, again, has been it's an interesting thing. And you guys have heard me talk a little bit about this, talk a lot about it, actually. It's, it's amazing that to me that God calls people, human beings, to carry on the mission. There was something profound when Jesus, you know, when he died and he rose from the dead. And remember, he was around some of the followers and then he ascended. And he and he's basically saying, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to leave you alone. He told the fact that I'm going to give you the power of my spirit for you to accomplish that what I called you to accomplish. But it's good for me to go away. And then he left, and he left the kingdom of the earthly kingdom into the hands of people, not not to do it alone, but to, through the power of the spirit that we are to build and advance the kingdom on the earth. And he began with his disciples, and he left, and we know the story in Acts two with the Holy Spirit pours out and, and, and comes in fullness and power upon them um, for them ultimately to be witnesses and to testify to Christ and to, and, and to build the church and the kingdom. And here we are some 2,000 plus years later continuing that mission, or we should be, to be reminded of the mission that Jesus came to fulfill and to accomplish until he returns that we have a mission and we have a function in the body of Christ as his body. And this, uh, if you've not been with us, we've been tracking along. Um, it's actually from a book written by a guy named Tom Rayner called I Am a Church Member, what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. Paul gives this analogy of the human body in verse 13 and 12. And he says the church is like a human body. Every, every part has a, every person is a, has a part and a functioning role that they are to accomplish to help the body be healthy, to be able to be strong, and to do what it's called to do. And so we've been looking at what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, a church member. Uh, today is actually part two, uh, because I took the last two chapters of the book. Um, and I broke those kind into a two-part, and it's um, probably because I treasure church membership as a gift. I will lead my family to be healthy members of the church, part two. It's a mouthful, I know, but uh, for, for, again, for, for the speedy purposes, it's part six. Um, but part five is I will lead my family to be healthy members of the church, and then uh, the last chapter of the book is I will treasure church membership as a gift, and I thought to encompass those together, and so we will be concluding with those thoughts today. So last week and this week are this two-part ending of the final two chapters. I told you that was to be continued, and here we go with the conclusion. Last week we spent our time talking about that spiritual life, loving God, 
serving God, valuing the church and God's kingdom, it begins at home. It begins at home. We train our families by how we live our lives. Our value system is taught to them by what we treasure. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be. There's your passion. And where you put your treasure, your time, your energy, your resources, and what you, where you put that and where you place that, tells everyone around you where your value system is. And so, when we, being a member of the church, being a member of the kingdom of God, loving God, that begins at home when we train our children specifically by what we value. I talked a little bit last week here that the parable, that religious parable Jesus gave in, in Matthew 13. He said the kingdom of God is like a, a, a treasure in the field. This man found this treasure. And it, and it happened to be, evidently, it was this field that was for sale. And so he buries the treasure, and then he goes and he sells everything to get enough money to go buy that field because he ultimately wants the treasure in that field. And in that very, very short parable, we have so much that, that, that is taught to us. It's, 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 it's this guy is saying, I value this so much that I will sell everything. I will give my life to it. I am all in for the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is life, that it's a treasure. Do we understand that it's a treasure? Do we treat it as a treasure? We also talked about last week where this prophetic picture of the Old Testament, Nehemiah, to rebuild the wall and all of this work that needed to be done, the wall was torn down and he began to station people and, and they were by family groups. And it's interesting that it says that in the Bible, station by families and each each family group or, or maybe it was a you know, larger extended family or maybe it was kind of like a church and that each group had their, their part on the wall and they were to repair the wall and, and there was a vision and a mission that was, that was all around them, and God called them to, and he said, remember the vision of Israel, remember what God has called them to do to repair the wall. There was, the enemy came at them, was trying to disrupt what they were doing, trying to divide them, and yet they, they kept their hearts and minds in the vision of Israel. They worked together, they fought for each other. And in that profound statement, he said, fight for your wives, your sons, your daughters, your families. Fight for them. Fight for them. This picture, I think, is a, a, a great picture of the church. And so we left off last week asking the question, how do we lead our families to be healthy members of the church? And so we're going to answer that question. But I'm going to toss right here because I just forgot I'm announcing the answer. If you would like to help out in the kitchen next week with a brunch, see Ann after service today, that would be fantastic. We need some help up there. It would be great. A way to function in the church. Yeah, I can tie it together. See how beautiful that was. So I'm going to look at some ways that how we can lead our families to be healthy members. Number one is we lead them to love, serve, and give their lives to Jesus above all. This is going to be obvious. This is it starts here. This first and foremost remembering why we exist as the church. Why Jesus came, he came to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us. So it all starts here. It starts in that relationship with God. It starts at the surrender of our hearts. It starts at the place of unconditional surrender, salvation, the basic gospel message of giving my heart, giving my life, and responding to his 
it initiates to the block to me because it's more than us giving up. It's responding to His grace. It's responding to receiving His gift of eternal life. And our families won't understand the value of being a healthy Christian if they don't understand what it means to surrender our lives to Christ, to live our lives for Jesus, to understand that we've been ransomed, we've been saved. Because it begins and ends in a relationship with Him. Being a Christian is more than a starting point where we say, salvation, when were you saved? When did you ask Jesus in your heart? Or whatever words we use there, it's more than an event. It's more than a one-time thing. It is more than your baptism. It is more than a prayer that you pray. It is how you live your life. It is finishing well. It's finishing in relationship with Jesus as well as beginning with Jesus. So it begins and ends with Him. Again, understanding the gospel. What is the gospel? We are sinners. We are broken. We desperately need Jesus Christ. Understanding that we deserve death, that our sin, our sin has a punishment of death. All has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3 tells us. And then the payment, the just penalty for sin is death. We were taught that in the Old Testament where, 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 where they would sacrifice animals because because of sin, something must die. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. We have no sin without, without the shedding of blood. And it's not our own... It's not our own lives that we give as far as death is concerned. Jesus has done it, and so we receive His sacrifice. And the payment that He made, understanding that we are broken, we can't save ourselves, we can't be good enough. And He went to the cross because He understands that we can't be good enough. He gave all. He rescued us from sin through His death and resurrection. And why did He do it? Because He loved us. He absolutely loves us. He has a plan for us. Now, people that reject Him and reject Him and reject Him, they will, they will stand before Him as judge one day, and they will take on their own punishment for sin, eternal death. And people will ask the question, you know, how can a loving God send someone to hell or judgment? And I just say that He doesn't. He, 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 he's a judge, and He will judge him. Did you receive the gift? of his son, Jesus says, if you reject it, you will be judged by that sin. What do you do with that? And so the response is, how do you deal with it? You repent. Talked about that last week, the beautiful word of repentance, turning, going a different way, surrendering our lives to him, forsaking our sin, not making excuses for our sin, but saying, God, I understand I'm a sinner. It's this idea of, again, the guy with the treasure in the field, of of understanding I'm all in. I will sell everything. I, 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 I give my whole heart to this idea to belong to Jesus. And then in turn, what does he do? He calls us to partner with him in this ministry. We've been radically rescued, and then he calls us as a church to be a part of radically rescuing others. We're a rescue mission. So a message that we heard some years ago at C3, we are a rescue mission. We are not a yacht. To sit and bask. We're not a cruise ship to just say, you know, aren't we all awesome? You're wonderful and so am I. We're a rescue ship. We are a rescue ship. We are 
we've been radically rescued, and so therefore God has called us to be a part of radically rescuing others. So we lead, how do we lead our families to be helping them? We lead them to love, serve, and give their lives to Jesus above all. Number two, we lead them to love the church and the people in the church. Here's a couple of titles. If you're not familiar with this, don't let this freak you out. The church is called the Bride of Christ. Jesus, one of his names, is a, the bridegroom. This is not a gender thing. This is an identity thing. That is just in the Bible, a couple of things. We're called the bride. He is called the bridegroom. It's, he gave his life for us. And we see this analogy played out um, uh, in, in, in the Bible. In Ephesians 5 specifically, you see the passage up there. But the people around you, if you look to your right or your left, behind you, in front of you, those people are a part of the bride of Christ that Jesus loves. And we should love the church and love the people who should like Jesus loves the church because he loves us. Ephesians 5, it says, As husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. And so in Ephesians 5, we have this famous passage on marriage that Paul talks about, functioning the role of marriage and family. But in there, at the end of that idea, he's talking about husbands love your wives, and he says that at the end, he says, but I'm speaking to you about a profound mystery. I'm speaking to you of Christ in the church. So he says, yes, there is the thing marriage. There's a man and a woman being married on the earth. Yes, I understand that. He designed it. He made it that way. And he says, but what this really does is it's a, it's a symbol. It is to point people to the gospel message of Jesus. So a husband and wife reveals the gospel. It shows people the gospel. And that's what Paul says, I'm revealing to you a great mystery here. It's Christ in the church. And this is how much Jesus loved his bride. He went to the cross to her. And all of those scriptures, this is love that Christ gave his love. So Paul uses marriage to reveal the truth of Christ in the church. He loves the church. He gave his life to the church. And then we, in turn, should love each other. And what he's describing here is self-sacrificial love. I'm not going to get into uh, premarital counseling with you, but that, the couples that I work with, we talk about three loves that are mentioned in the Bible. And the, the one that has to be foundational, the one that is mentioned more than others, the first Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, all of that, is self-sacrificial love. It is I'm going to lay my life down for you kind of love, not I'm thinking of myself first kind of love. What, how does this benefit me? That is not the kind of love that is part of the Bible. Jesus came, here's how he loves you and me. He went to the cross. He didn't deserve it. He lived a sinless life. That's profound, and we needed him to live a sinless life. And he was the perfect sacrifice for us, and he took the punishment that we deserve because he loves us. Therefore, we should love each other. To see his value of the bride, we see each other as a part of that bride and to love one another. First John 4, 19-21. We love because he first loved us. Notice who the initiator is. Jesus initiates love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. There's some strong words in the Bible. And John is writing this. He says, if you claim that you love God and you hate a brother and sister, 
And here again, he's writing to the church. This letter that is written is to the church. It's not necessarily the same biological brother and sister. I mean, that can include that. You shouldn't hate anyone. But he's saying if you have the same, if you, if you say, I, well, I love God, but I, I just can't stand you. Paul, I mean, John is using some very strong language here. He says, if you do that, you're a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whoever does not love, you can say the church. Whoever does not love the bride of Christ, whom they have seen, they cannot love God whom they have not seen. And He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Folks, your brother and your sister is your church family. It's the people that are sitting around you. But it's also, it goes beyond them. It is the church wide. It is, it is other people that call on the name of Christ, our brothers and sisters in other church buildings. The church goes beyond just the building. It is the people. It is, it, it, it is us. But we must guard our heart how we love, how we treat one another. And so we need our families to be healthy church members. Number one, by leading to love, serve, and give their lives to Jesus. Number two, to lead them to love the church and the people in church in loving our brothers and sisters. And that leads me to number three. How do we lead our families to be healthy members? Because we lead them to forgive. And notice when we're leading them, and, and, and again, to, to preface these thoughts, is we lead by example. If I'm loving and serving and giving my heart to Jesus, my family will follow. If I'm loving my brothers and sisters, my family will follow. Maybe they won't at some point. That'll be a decision they have to make, but I have to do my part. They will learn by what, how I live more than how I, what I say. And again, forgiving, they will... To be healthy members, we must forgive each other. And they are going to learn forgiveness by how I forgive and how I release people and not hold on to grudges. You've heard me say that families are dysfunctional. The church is no different. That's why I'm always at amazed at a marriage. And I've used this analogy before. You have these two people. And you know, a lot of people, they, a lot of young couples, they, are, they understand their, what they're getting into. But some of them have, you know, you know the, 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 the stardust in their eyes. And they think, you know, well, we're, we're never going to have any problems. We're never going to have any you know, arguments. You know, we're going to have, we're going to have agreeable disagreements. And uh, they have a plan for that. And the night is kind of inside them bursting out laughing and rolling in the floor. Um, outside, I'm just smiling, shaking my head. and like, you have no idea. But it's amazing that, and, and it reveals, again, it reveals how much we need God because you take two broken individuals and now you're going to share life together. And it's the church. We all are broken. We all have dysfunctions. We all have things that, that happen to us in ways we were raised and, uh, you know, a part of how we're made up. And then we come and we bring our brokenness here. And sometimes I think that we have this idea that we're not going to get let down. We're not going to get our feelings hurt. Well, these are Christians. We're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to love and hug and, you know, and sing all the time. And it's just going to be wonderful. And we're going to have, you know, 
food after church and eat together and, and to hug each other, and that'll be, that'll be how we live life. And we're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to offend each other. We're going to be offended. And it, again, what do you do with that? Do you live under the offense? Do you live offended? Do you live begrudgingly? Or do you choose to forgive? Do you say, I'm going to release that person. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold that against them because I'm going to remember the cross. I'm going to be remembering what Jesus has freed me from and what he has so deeply forgiven me of. But we have to make allowances for each other and choose, the word choose, to forgive each other. Forgiveness is a choice. If you're waiting to feel like forgiven, you'll be waiting a long time. And you just have to say, Lord, I don't feel it right now, but I choose to forgive. Lord, I'm going to pray for them. Because Jesus, you just have to your enemies. And so Jesus, in the civil military, he deals with some very strong ideas that he says, I'm not even, he said, your, your, your family, the church family, should be an obvious. He said, I'll, I'll tell you, forgive even your enemies, those who spitefully use you. Those who know they're doing you wrong, and they still do you wrong, and they don't care if they're going to do you wrong. He said, even forget that. Forgive your enemies. And so how much more, then, should we forgive each other in the church? Make allowance to each other. Because this is a sign of a healthy family, a healthy marriage, and a healthy church. Because, you know, healthiness is not perfection. You know, it's not the idea of we have it all together and we have no problems. Oh, they're a really healthy family. No, they're probably kind of a fake family. But it's the idea of we are broken, but we choose to forgive, we continue to move on. That's the sign of health. Your parents, when we have disagreements, agreeable disagreements, in front of our children, or they know something's going on, how do we treat each other? How do we respond? They're learning. They're, they're listening. And so this idea is not perfection, but it's even humbling myself to say, please forgive me, I was wrong, I'm sorry. When your kids see that, it's a huge blessing to them. Because they already know you're not perfect. But when you admit it, it, is, it does something to their heart to say, your dad admitted that he was wrong. Mom admitted she was wrong. Man, it helps them to be healthy. Because, again, if we train them to, well, you don't admit that you're wrong. You don't say you're sorry. You pretend everything's okay. That is not helpful. And so they're watching. They're watching. And over and over again in the New Testament, Paul talks a ton about this. And Jesus, again, used strong language in the Sermon on about this idea of forgiveness and the importance of it. Because the whole Sermon on is about the kingdom of God in our hearts. Because he says, forgive from your heart. Because if you don't forgive, he said, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. God forbid we stand before Jesus on that day and we have refused to forgive someone. It's a weighty thing when we refuse to forget from our heart. Next, number four, how do we leave? And these are kind of tied. Again, this, this kind of just ends up to the end of the two chapters. The last two chapters are kind of a summary, if you will, of the, the other parts. But we lead them to unity in the church. 
That was week two. I will be a unifying member. And we talked about the idea of unity is more than a good idea. It is critical to the mission of the church. And I gave the analogy of a, 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 an army that goes out to war and they have a strategy and they have a mission. Well, if they are disjointed, if they are divided, and if they are not in unity, they are destined to fail. And so, unity is critical to the mission of the church. In fact, the gospel is at stake. Lives are at stake when we are not unified. And so, we want to see God work. We must be in unity. As it was in Nehemiah's day, the enemy will fight us. He will try to divide us. He will try to get you uh, to not forgive your brother and sister. He will try to bring in different visions and say, well, I don't like this vision. No, i got my own mission. And he will try to do that and try to do that. And we have to fight against that. And I said this before, unity is not agreeing with each other about everything, but loving, respecting, and honoring each other when we don't agree. And that's probably the greatest test of unity is when we don't agree. And it was so important to Jesus that He prayed for you and me. He prayed for us in John 17 that we would be one as the Father, He and the Father one, because the world will know. And He says in the prayer the gospel is at stake. Our unity, the gospel is at stake. And then we want to see the other benefits from the Lord. We want to see the outpouring of the Spirit and we invite His presence and power to come. But you notice in the upper room in Acts 2, it's because they were all in one mind and one accord. What does it say there? They were in unity. And then the Spirit came. And so if we're not in unity, thinking that the Spirit's going to come, it's probably not going to happen. And so unity is a, it's a strategy for the church and it's essential for the church. Ephesians 4.3 Paul writing again, make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. In other words, guys, fight for it. Do whatever you can do, your part. And you can't, you can't give other people peace. Only God can do that. You can be at peace in your own heart walking with people. As far as it's concerned with you, the Bible says be at peace with all men. That's up to us, and it's a choice that we make. But he says, make it every effort. Effort. Do what you know to do. Number five, leading our family to be healthy. Remember, lead them to value the church. Lead them to value the church. Again, our families learn a value system from us. It's the biggest way when, when kids get older and they, you know, you, we're, we're at that stage now. We've got adult kids and now we have a four-year-old and it's, man, we're relearning some things and like, whoa, man, how much do you forget? Well, you see when your kids get older, and it's, it's the things that they value, the, the value system that you placed in them. That's a convicting thing, too. Because it's, it's convicting sometimes when they make a certain choice and you don't agree with that. You know, you see a lot of yourself. You know, and I shared this one time, you know, a few years ago, Taylor and I were having a, 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 an agreeable disagreement, and... Uh, and the Lord is like, it just showed me like I was looking in a mirror because I was frustrated. And, uh, and it was like looking at my stuff. It was like, I wonder where he learned that from. Beep, 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 not, hey, honey, deal with your kid. You know, um, he gets that from you. No, it's the wrong thing to say, by the way. That's a, that's a, that's a road you do not want to travel on. 
bad, bad deal. That's right up there with saying, I guess you haven't had any quiet time. Um, so I can give you top ten things not to say in an argument. I didn't say that, but I've never done that. But more than what we say, how do we live? They will value what we value. If, if the church, the body of Christ, is important to us, it will be important to them. And so what priority do we put on the church family in our lives? I encourage it's a great question to think about and ponder. You know, much has been talked about over the last few years. You've heard me reference it, and there is a, a concerning epidemic that Ashton Tom Rainer deals with a lot in other studies that he does, but it is concerning specifically the next generation and how they are leaving the church at an alarming rate. And the retention, some of you, a lot of them even grow up in church, and the retention percentage is way down. That they stay with it, that they stay involved in the body of Christ and the church. Because a lot of them, again, they grow up in church, they go off to college or they go off to a career, and then they just stop attending church, they stop being a part of a body, uh, the body of Christ, and they just cease to function. And, then, and a lot of people are asking these questions, and a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders are, are, are saying, what's going on, and how do we deal with this? Because it is an epidemic, and, 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 and if the next generation aren't catching it, we're not that far behind Europe, which Europe used to be you know, the hotbed of revival and what God was doing, and churches were filled, and now Europe, it's one, you know, in the free world, it's one of the lowest percentages of church attendance and people that are involved in church. We're not that far behind that, and so what's going on? And some of the reasons are linked back to, you know, true discipleship. And we're asking even this question in our own house, own church, that discipleship in the home, in the church, because guys, discipleship begins in the home. The church could be a great supplement to disciple, but we become disciples ourselves, and then we disciple our family. And so there, there is this idea of equipping them to make it, equipping them to defend their faith, equipping them to walk, understand what it means to walk with Christ daily, knowing why they believe what they believe. Is this my mom and dad's faith? Is this my faith? I don't know. And they get out there and they have this crisis of faith, which is not a bad thing. I think sometimes it's healthy to have questions and doubts, but do they ultimately lead back to the authenticity of Christ? But you know, there's another big reason that we're losing them, and that's where parents, again, by training how we live to put value on the church and connecting to the church, it's very low. It's low in priority. We may not say it, but again, how do we model it? More than what we say, how do we live? Hebrews 10 is the passage that we've dealt with quite frequently. Let us hold unswervingly. I love that word. Don't hold unswervingly. Don't, don't, don't get knocked from here to there. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how many we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So think about that. How can you spur one another, provoke one another to love and good deeds? That's a calling for how we can love each other. Not giving up meeting together. Meeting together. Don't give up meeting together. We're supposed to meet together. 
And then he says that some are in that habit of doing. So this is not a new problem. It was happening back then. But encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching, the day becomes the day of the Lord, the end of the age, where either, again, where Jesus returns or it's the end of your age, because we're all going to hit the end. We're going to hit a finish line. And so it's hard to spur one another on to love and to believe. It's hard to encourage one another knowing what is happening with each other and the members of the body of Christ or what Paul says, bearing one another's burdens. It's hard to do that when there's not a value on being connected with one another. It's very difficult. You can't spur one another when you're not connected, when you're never together, when you're never meeting So there's this, do we value it? And, and we lead our fancy husbands when we value it. Number six, this ties into the first one, is we lead them to function. We encourage ourselves. You're a part of the body of Christ. And I think parents, let me say this, is that we, you know, and I've heard this before, it's like, you know, that, that, that kids don't have a, a junior Holy Spirit. They have the same Holy Spirit that's in us, and they are as much a part of the body of Christ and they have a role and a function. They may, they may not teach a class. They're not ready to do that, but they, they, do, they have a function and that we begin to train them to say, you are going to function. You have a place that, 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 that you know, yes, when you get to a certain age, there might be a, a teaching role or some sort of role like that in the body, but even now there's a value on you to be a part and we lead them to function. Because we're all called followers of Jesus to be functioning members. You know, there was no word in the first century church of non-functioning member or an inactive member of the church. They didn't, they didn't have words for that. It was understood that if you belong to Jesus, you belong to his body, and you were supposed to function in the role that he placed you in. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. To Christ himself, Gave the, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. That's kind of that fivefold of ministry, um, ministry uh, roles in the church to equip his people for works of service, or one translation says, for the work of the ministry. And so, believers equip you to do the ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up. You see how it's functioning here. There's equipping, there's working, then it's built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I love that because unity leads you to maturity, which leads you to the fullness of Christ. That's why unity is so important. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people and the deceitful scheming because there's all kinds of weird teaching out there. There's bad doctrine out there. How do we guard that? Well, as a family, we come together and we talk about these things. How do we guard our heart? I'm reading a book and it's weird and I don't understand. Well, we come together and let's look at that. Let's compare it in light of Scripture. Scripture is where we find sound doctrine. Because there's, there's defeat out there. Instead of speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself in love as part, each part does its work. 
We're called to function. Ephesians 4 says that. So the body succeeds. It walks in everything that God has for it. It fulfills the vision and mission by being connected to the head, Jesus Christ. Surrendering our lives to Him. Holding together by every supporting ligament. That's where we're connected to one another. Just like the body. We're connected to each other. Growing and building itself up in love. And then as each part do, does what it's supposed to. It's kind of this help where we're seeing help kind of flow. Connected to each other. And then lastly, seven, lead them to commitment. Lead them to commitment. I love this passage in Acts 2. Um, the context here is, you know, we have the beginning of Acts 2. Jesus tells him to go to the upper room. That uh, he's going to give the promised Holy Spirit. We know that that event happens. They come out. They begin to spread the gospel among the languages um, of the people that have gathered. And so some things are happening here. At the end of Acts 2, we have a kind of a blueprint for church. It's kind of how the church started, kind of how the church was born. And you have this kind of blueprint in these paths in this path of description. I'm going to kind of break this down for you. But leading our, to be healthy members, we lead our families to commitment. And so Acts 2, starting 42, they devoted themselves. You just stop right there. There was devotion, commitment. That word devotion is profound dedication. That's what it means. Profound dedication. So they were they were devoted, they were committed, and they committed themselves to what? And so that's the big question. Right? They're devoted, they're committed to what? First of all, the apostle teaching. What is that to us? It's the Word of God. They were committed and devoted to the Word of God and to fellowship. What is fellowship? The word, the Greek word that, that's used there is koinonia. It's a big, weird word. But you know what it means? We hear fellowship when we think having, you know, coffee with someone. That can be involved. The koinonia, the intention there is fellowship is that you're connected to each other. It's deep connection. We might have coffee, but we're talking about deep things. We're talking about the Word of God. We're saying, how are you doing, really? Let me pray for you. And it's deep relational connection. So here's what they said. The Holy Spirit comes. And here's what they were committed to. We're going to commit ourselves to the Word of God, to teach you the Word of God. We're going to come in and we're going to be committed to the Word. We're going to read the Word. We're going to be in fellowship with each other. We're going to be connected to each other on a deep level. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. So again, having meals together that was obvious, but to praying for one another. And then what happens when they were committed to that? Look at 43. Everyone was filled with awe and at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. I love the tie there. So when they were committed to these things, the basic things that God began to do, powerful things among them. All the believers were together. Okay, again, committed together. They had everything in common. There's unity. Verse 45. Let's go to that. Then they got pretty radical. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, this is, a, again, the first century where, you know, monetarily your money was not so much probably in, you know, having, like, money in your pockets or in a bank account, but it was by the things that you had. And so if somebody had need, they were willing to go sell things to meet those needs. 
And so we, as when, when there's needs among the body, is so we, we we respond. You know, and, and if it takes you selling something, that I mean, that might be it. But you know, we're we're a pretty blessed nation. We're pretty blessed. If, you know, you, you hear the things that we have changed in our pocket. We're among the top, you know, five to six percent of the world's wealthiest people. And so we meet those needs and we love one another. Uh, and, and, and again, we don't know that if you're not connected. And here's what it said, verse 46, let's continue. What were they committed to? Every day they continued to meet together. They made meeting together a priority in the temple courts. Now, I understand, again, that I'm not telling you that you have to meet every day, but regularly meet, regularly be committed to the body of Christ. Sunday morning worship, a small group, um, Wednesday night things, classes that are offered, these are just ways to connect and be committed one to each other. Then they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with gladness and their hearts. In hospitality, having meals together. And again, it's not always this serious thing of let's get together and hunker down and pray. You can laugh and you can enjoy one another in relationship, but that's why it's how we're wired. So praising God and enjoying, verse 47, enjoying the favor of all the people. And then listen to this. All those things that you're committed to, you get back to the mission and the vision. You see how it all comes back? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, rescued, redeemed. It was about the mission of transform lives. They were intentionally connected to each other. Again, not just in and of themselves. Okay, us, Lord, we're going to huddle together. You stay out. And see, I think a lot of times the church has become that. We get so comfortable with our stuff and our music and our little thing, and then we don't want anyone else in. We, we've got enough. You guys stay out. We want the broken and lost because, you know what? We are broken and we were lost. And sometimes we forget. And this whole thing is when they were dedicated, they were committed to these things, these foundational things, the blueprint of the church, since the Lord was adding to their number of being saved, they had the right priority. And people were getting coming to Christ. And that's what we need to be reminded of. That's the fruit of this. But it was intentionally being committed and connected with each other. So that was the call of the church. Sincere commitment. And I know we live in a busy time. I get that. You know, most of the time when you say, how... You know, when you're talking to each other, and I mean, I've said it well, it's, you know, how are you, how is the week, busy? Does that pretty much sum up everybody here? You know, most of us, I mean, you know, we're not just necessarily bored and looking for things to do. Our days are usually filled, and I understand that. But we cannot let busyness be an excuse to allow a commitment, priorities to suffer. Especially with regards as you look biblically at the calling of us as the church. Because busyness can rob us. Busyness can be an excuse. Busyness, well, I'm going too busy. And just say, no, Lord, God, help me in my busyness to make sure that I am intentional about doing those things and doing the right thing. Because it, it may not alleviate your busyness, but you'll have the right priority. Don't let that suffer as it pertains to a commitment to Jesus, the church, the kingdom, the mission. So we're called to lead our families to be healthy members of the church. 
again, they will learn from us what we live. They will prioritize what we prioritize. They will value what we value. You guys know, I mean, the things for how we live and learn. It's like bitterness, you know, bitterness is learned. Bitterness is learned. You meet bitter people, they're going to have bitter kids. And they grow up and it's wired, you know, their family's bitter. Grumbling and complaining is learned. How they hear us in our home, how we talk about people, how we process even how we're offended. Because sometimes it hurts and you need to talk about it. I understand that. How do you talk about it? That's the important thing. Is there redemption on that and how you're talking about it? Or is it just to tear people down, grumble and complain about things that are not happening your way? It's going to be learned. And then again, we get to look in the mirror when our kids get to a certain age and then they're, they're, you just have this grumbling, complaining older teenager, and you're like, you know, why are you so grumbling and complaining? And then the Lord is like, um, <clears throat> where did they learn that from? But you know what also is learned? Thankfulness. Graciousness. Because I, I don't think it's good that, that, you know, I think sometimes we need to keep some information away from our kids, but I think sometimes it's good that they see how we process that this difference. The mom and dad, this, this hurt when this was done. This was painful. But now what do we do about that? We, we forgive, we, we, we love, and we understand that even though that person may be a little malicious in it, we, we choose to just to love them and to say, God, I believe them. But that stuff is learned. Forgiveness is learned. I know that's somewhat challenging and convicting, but let that sink into our hearts and knowing the merciful and gracious God that we love and we serve, that He can turn that all around starting today. His mercies are new every morning. That it doesn't have to continue the trend, doesn't have to continue those generational curses that they don't have to continue. That we can say, you know what, starting today, I'm going to choose to live differently. I'm going to choose to have the right response. I'm going to choose to fix my eyes on the Lord and not on my hurt. Because we, all of us, not just a pastor, all of us have a high calling. We have a high calling, and it's a calling to the mission and the vision of Jesus as the church. He's given us the spirit. He's given us the power to accomplish it. He's not left us alone. But we have a weighty responsibility. I pray that we take it serious because we souls are at stake, but the kingdom is at stake. Let us run well and finish what we can and bring people. Lord, as I just kind of look back up at this verse 47 in Acts 2, and it says that you added to their number daily those who are being saved. God, that's what we want. We want people to come to know Christ. We want the saving knowledge, the transforming power of Jesus to touch and change and redeem lives all across this region. Lord, the people that you've called us to, 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 to reach, Lord, the, our co-workers. Lord, those other students in the school around us. Lord, the people that we come in contact with on a daily basis, Lord, uh, at, the, at the store, our neighbors. Lord, maybe folks that we've seen thousands of times. 
Lord, we are here and we are around them for a reason, for a purpose. I pray, God, that we would be diligent to pray for the people around us. I pray, God, that we would, uh, ourselves, um, God, that we would become healthy members of the body of Christ. Lord, loving you, serving you, forgiving each other, walking in unity. Lord, modeling that for our children, modeling that for our families, leading them into that place as well. God, forgive us where we fall short, because we do. We desperately need you. So God, help us as we go from this day forward knowing that there is a high calling on each of us to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus, to usher in the kingdom, to see the kingdom grow and build until you come or you call us home. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, everyone's done. Amen. God bless.